Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and the head of Research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's time again for our monthly conversation with Grow, and let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China, and Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi Hao, thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Hey Richard, good to be here. I guess we shall first start with Golden Week. We've looked at the holiday activity numbers, and I must say they are showing a fairly mixed picture. First, tourism is still the bright spot. Now, both the passenger trips and the tourism revenues are more than 2019, marginally. The passenger trips are 4% higher than 2019, and for tourism revenue, the growth is 1.5%. As for the other consumption numbers, parcel volume is strong. It grows at 9% compared to a year ago. Restaurant revenues during the holiday were up 20% from a year ago, but... The movie box indeed is a little bit below expectation. And I think some investors actually had a little bit of expectations getting into the holiday. So the market might be a little bit disappointed at this set of numbers. But in any case, like how as an economist, what are your thoughts on these numbers? Do you think they're good enough? I think the numbers are good. After three long years of lockdown, the Chinese consumption is actually back to 2019 level. And also, normally, the consumption during the golden week period is a very good indication of where the consumption is going to be for the remaining of the year. What I mean is that before the Chinese New Year. So going into November, you know, we'll have the single stay, the world's biggest sales event. And then after that, it will be the Chinese New Year in January and February. It is a very strong lead into a traditionally high season for Chinese consumption. And also, if you are in China, I was able to get a ticket to go back to China to see my friends. And firstly, the feeling is that the ticket is very difficult to get. All the train tickets were sold out and the train station was like so packed that I had to make part of the journey using car. When I was driving on the road and a trip that normally takes about two hours, it takes about six hours to complete. It's absolutely insane. So familiar chock-a-block traffic jam is back to China, which is good. It's also showing up in the numbers that you quoted just now. So I would say that it is a good sign that the Chinese consumer is bouncing back. And then it is a very strong lead into a traditionally high season for Chinese consumption. That's very interesting. And during the holidays, we also observe the new home sales. I think it's pretty much at similar level. No further weakening for sure. But there's no clear improvement either. I'm talking about the new home sales uh, firsthand. Obviously, secondhand is much better. It's already more than a month since the housing policies were announced at the end of August. So I guess my question is, what are your views on the property outlook? It lo- does look like there's huge divergence between firsthand and secondhand homes. What do you think? I think the relaxation of all the housing purchase restrictions in September did help September sales. And traditionally, September is the best month for Chinese property sales of the year. So already we're seeing a very strong rebound uh, in September. It was sort of encouraging, but then the momentum sort of dissipated uh, going into October. But of course, you know, people were busy on the road, traveling, spending money and not buying property. But then at the same time, you know, we can see that the first hand, the new home market, it is still down substantially year on year. While, and people 
uh, choose to buy second-hand home instead of the first-hand home because of the landway the incomplete housing construction problem that is still lingering. I think you can't blame them. On one hand, you know, people want to improve their living quality, but then on the other hand, you know, they're afraid that once you plunk down the money, you may not be able to, to get the property as they sign in the contract. So I think as a result, you're seeing a pretty resilient second-hand market, but then the uh, new home market is still sort of languishing. I think it is a sort of a dilemma for many of the Chinese consumer because for a Chinese person, it is sort of culturally difficult for him or her to buy a second-hand home. The Chinese like buying new, right? So new car, new furniture, new home is a symbol of how you've already made it in your life. So it's not sort of usual for a Chinese person to buy a second-hand home if he or she has a choice. So I think the divergence between the new home and the second-hand home sales, it is a telltale sign, you know, saying that the demand for housing is still here, especially the demand for a better life, a better house. But then at the same time, the issue of some developers not being able to complete the housing project is still sort of haunting the Chinese housing demand. I think right now, there isn't a very clear way how to get out of this, even though top-down, the policy saying that all the developers would have to ensure uh, timely and uh, delivery of the uh, housing project. But then at the same time, when it comes down to the regional local government level, many of the developers finding it very difficult to sort of dispatch the money from one region to another, right? So because the local government wouldn't want them to dispatch the cash flow in between region, inter-regions, to make sure that the local jurisdiction, the local projects under local government jurisdiction would be completed, would have enough funding to be completed. So that is a dilemma. So on one hand, we have many national developers probably have enough cash on the national level, but then regional disparity in terms of cash needs. But they cannot sort of reallocate their cash resources, you know, to different regions to ensure the completion of housing project. So I think as a result, you're seeing some regions, the new home sales is better because the issue of incomplete housing project is less acute. But then in the lower tier cities, obviously, housing demand for new housing uh, is hit by this kind of local government restrictions. It's very, very tricky. So I think it sort of aggravates the problem. It makes the incomplete housing project issue more acute than it should be. So I think there's no obvious way out, right? So because all the local government wants to make sure that the housing project under their jurisdiction would be completed on time. But then at the same time, the national developers could not sort of reallocate their cash resources to different regions to ensure as a whole all the housing projects get completed. Uh, so that's why you're seeing disparity between tier one cities and the lower tier cities. And even for the tier one cities, you know, because recently there are like, you know, so many news headlines regarding Chijayin, the owner or the biggest shareholders of uh, Evergrande, China's biggest, uh, the world's biggest developer. And also Country Garden uh, is seeing its uh, new home sales down 90% year on year. All right, so it's just going to get worse. Pretty soon you will see that all the cash resources in these developers would be eaten up because new home sales is not recovering, right? So they can't recycle the cash. So it remains to be seen, but I think it's a problem that requires probably multi-year solution to see the end of it. It does look like we still need a bit of time to solve the property market issue completely. 
a long time. <laughs> a long time, yeah. <laughs> Especially when you mentioned that there's still a bit of conflict of interest, uh, so-called conflict of interest uh, between the different local governments. On a more positive note, you know, for the broader economy, we've seen quite a bit of data recently that seems to suggest that the economy may be finally bottoming out. And for example, the official manufacturing PMI for September is above 50 for the first time in six months. Exports and imports are still declining year on year, but the magnitude of the decline is actually better than expected. And then for most investors, the biggest focus, obviously, is the total social financing, which is significantly stronger than market estimate, I would say. And electricity consumption is good as well. For sure, inflation is still the weak spot. CPI is flat compared to last year, but actually fell short of expectation just by a little bit, to be fair. Nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that overall, the numbers do point to some stabilization in the economy. So my question to you, how is, would you agree to this statement? What's your conclusion on the Chinese economy right now? And frankly, I think the more important question for investors is whether that may actually, or that should get us more concerned, whether that means easing intensity in the future would then fade. I think the uh, economy is improving on the margin. So it means that it's trying to find the bottom at this time, at this juncture. I think it's actually doing it. And I think because... Two parts of the economy is showing different degree of recovery. And therefore, when one focuses on the property sector, he or she may not be able to see you know, any signs of life, you know, because sales are still going down year on year. But then if you look at the manufacturing sector, the car sector, the new energy sector, the high-tech manufacturing sector, such as the semiconductor industry, they are going full steam. So as a result, as you can see, the Chinese new credit growth, it is still growing. So it's actually beating expectation. And it is a very strong leading indicator of the Chinese economy. And the reason being, historically, we used to rely on housing property for credit expansion because the developers would borrow money to build houses and then people would borrow money to buy houses. Right? So it is a huge credit multiplier for the Chinese economy in the past. But then if you look at closely to the lending data, now loans to the Chinese manufacturing sector are starting to overtake the property sector to become the largest, sort of the largest borrower of the Chinese economy. So what that means is that the manufacturing sector is becoming the new credit multiplier for the Chinese economy. It is taking over the new growth engine for the Chinese economy. And I think it's a really good sign of economic restructuring. We're staying away or we're shifting away from a traditional model that relies solely on the property for growth. And instead, we're, say, we're starting to making things instead of you know, building cements and bricks, you know, trying to make the economy grow. And I think it's a really good transition. Obviously, it takes time. The transition process is starting to take place. And I think more and more people would grow to recognize this and sort of shift their focus away from whether the property sales is still going up or not to whether the car export is going up, whether the uh, semiconductor industry is will be able to make uh, better chips uh, in the future. So I think once that happens, then I think the market focus will shift from property to the more promising part of the Chinese economy as well. It does look like the economic policies that have been rolled out in the past few months um, finally have some impact on the fundamentals. And besides the economic policies, there have also been a lot of policies on the financial market, obviously with an objective to revive 
the financial market. So last month, we had stamp duty cut by half, the pace of IPO being controlled, some limitation on refinancing, relaxation for margin financing, etc. And then recently, they raised the guarantee for stock lending to make shorts a little bit more costly. But I guess the most important headline is that Huijin, for those who don't know, uh, basically the Chinese sovereign fund, uh, bought the shares of four Chinese banks and disclosed that it intended to raise its stakes up further in the coming six months. And obviously, that triggered quite a lot of discussion in the market about the national team. Now, we'll talk about the reaction of the overall market later. But right now, I'm most curious, and I believe our audience is also curious, uh, whether how you would recommend owning this sector. Now, at Julius Bear, we believe that you know the share prices of Chinese banks uh, probably don't have a lot of upside, to be frank. But if an investor is only focusing on the dividends, which are now as high as 8 to 9%, it may not be a bad idea to hold on to these Chinese banks' position, just like holding on to some bonds, as long as you're not unrealistic about the stock price returns. So now, my question to you, Hao, what do you think about the bank sector? We also like the banks as well. We have uh, the Chinese banks in our portfolio, right? So that's a disclaimer, so a compliance disclaimer that we have to have uh, make beforehand, before the discussion. I think the banks are valued at a very low valuation level, right? So the bank's share price has gone back to you know, 20 years ago when they first IPO in the Hong Kong market. And also the dividend yield is 10%, right? PE ratio is about three times. And I think the price to book is about 0.5 times. So a lot of uh, bad news is already discounted uh, in the price. And if you look at the uh, bank's earnings, it's actually sort of meeting or even better than expected. And surprisingly, some of the banks actually reporting lower bad loan ratio in their statements. It's quite surprising, but I don't know how they did it, but somehow you know, it's actually better than the market was expecting. I think probably because they over-reserve uh, in the past, and therefore when it comes to a low point of the property cycle, then they would be able to recognize the historical reserve for bad loans, and they don't have to make new bad loan provision going forward, and therefore it's actually showing an improvement on the financial statements. Right, so, which is a good development for the banks, and also if you look at the some of the Chinese banks, the absolute share price level is so low, the dividend yield is ten percent. It makes it very expensive to short it. So, you have to have a a very sort of a strong reason to believe that this time around. The economic situation is so much worse than, say, 2008. That was the lowest point for many of the Chinese banks. And then you have to make up for the 10% dividend yield as your shorting cost as well. So for me, there's more reason for the price to go up than to go down. And then on top of that, you got 10% dividend yield to compensate you or to cushion you on the downside. So I would say that I agree with you, Richard, that banks are at a very attractive valuation level at this point. And also, you know, we actually built our position before Central Huizhen uh, make its move. So after the move, actually, most of the Chinese banks in Hong Kong, especially the major ones, major state banks, uh, actually went uh, in prices. So I would say that at this point in time, you know, because uh, Central Huizhen announced that it would make more purchase in the coming six months, should it be necessary, then you're actually getting a support, a price support from one of the biggest and the most resourceful uh, sovereign funds in the world to intervene if there's some sort of unexpected bad news. So I agree with you and also agree with Central Huijing that the Chinese banks at this level uh, is an attractive investment opportunity. Right, fair enough. But for the overall market, on a slightly less positive note, 
it does look like the reaction from the overall market, especially if you judge it from the index, are quite muted to the policies that have been announced, whether that's on the economy or on the financial market itself. And most Chinese indices are still staying at fairly low levels. So how do you think it means that the market confidence locally has not come back yet? And my question is, what will really get the economy and or the market to trough in your view? I think the economy is sort of trying to find its footing. Obviously, just now we discussed the economic data is improving on the margin. So it is showing that the economy is improving on the margin. Then on the other hand, for some reason, the market is not responding very strongly to all these uh, policy announcements. And when the authority is seeing market fail to respond, then it come up with even more uh, policy to support the market. So to me, it is puzzling because one shouldn't be using daily dot market fluctuation as a sort of a performance measurement standard for you know whether the government is doing a good job or not, right? So it's just silly. So the stock market goes up doesn't mean that you, you did a really good job. You know, let's say in 2015, for example, there was a huge bubble. So the stock market went up to you know 5,000 plus points. It doesn't mean that the regulators are doing a good job. It just means that the stock market is in a bubble. So, you know, everybody's way too passionate about what the future could bring for the stock market. Then by the same token, when the market is going down, for example, uh, on the day when we had a stamp duty cut, most people, most traders in the Chinese market was like excited. You know, they was like over the top and putting in lots of buy orders. And the next thing, the surge, the five and a half percent surge only lasted six minutes. It doesn't mean that cutting the stamp duty is wrong. It is a good way to boost market sentiment. It's a good way to lessen the trading costs for, for many of the Chinese individual investors. But then at the same time, because it's, it's more a one-off boost to the market, and therefore the impact from such tax cut, uh, stamp duty tax cut, is not going to be long-lasting. And also, I think the Chinese market is actually sort of stronger than you think. Most people will focus on the major market index, such as the Shanghai Composite or the CSI 300, trying to gauge how strong or how bad the market is. But the thing is, if you look at the equal-weighted market index, so you're seeing the Chinese market is essentially flat since year to day. So some of the sectors actually gave you really good opportunities. For example, the Huawei-related sector, the semiconductor sector, and also the uh, new energy card, the EV sector actually give you upward 50% of return in a very short time this year. And I think the opportunities are are there to be had uh, in the Chinese market. It really depends on how you sort of evaluate, you know, what is presented in the market. But if we rely or depend solely on uh, policy announcements to sort of boost the market, the boost can be very transient, can be very fleeting. But I think if we focus on finding sort of pockets of opportunity in the market, then it will actually make our investment strategy more successful this year. I think that those are very well said. And as we discuss this market and also the economy, the economic data was just out literally a few minutes ago. GDP beat, IP beat, retail sales beat, slightly below expectation for FAI. But overall, it does look like the economy is stabilizing. So fingers crossed, let's hope that the market will give some credits to the positive economic data because it does look like in the past few weeks, the market somehow chose to ignore these positive headlines in China. And rather, the market sentiment was fairly dominated by the foreign flows and global factors. And this is particularly evident in the Hong Kong stocks. 
So, for example, in the past couple of weeks, when the U.S. Treasury yields kept going up, the Hong Kong market seemed to be falling more than the U.S. Even when we saw supportive policies domestically, and then some evidence of economic stabilization at the same time, and in my opinion, that's pretty ironic. But now we also have geopolitical tension in the Middle East. We have oil price volatility. So we need to think more carefully about the impact on the stock market. A lot of investors are actually asking us, why is the Hong Kong market so easily affected by global factors? That's not only true now, but it has been true traditionally. And recently, to some extent, that's also true for the Asian market. It just feels a little bit of that influence as well. As a stock analyst, I think I will attribute that to global flows because empirically, foreign money just leave emerging markets and go back to developed markets whenever there's volatility in the global economy or the global market. And an example is 2008, uh, during the global financial crisis, money left emerging market, went back to the US. So ironically, we've seen the Hang Seng Index falling more than the SPX 500, which in my view is a little bit funny. But in any case, whether that's logical or not, this is what we have observed and the pattern has been fairly consistent. So how my question for you is whether we can really establish any economic linkage at all or how would we explain this? So when US rates surge, when oil prices go up, which part of the Chinese economy would get most affected and how does that get into the stock prices? It's a very intriguing question as well. I mean, how could the, the Hong Kong market for even more than the U.S. market when the U.S. is the ones raising rates. So it's, it's puzzling. Recently, I ran a correlation test between Hong Kong and the Chinese Asia and also the U.S. stock market. And what I found is a one-to-one -one correlation between the Hang Seng, the Chinese Chinex, the Chinese closed board, and the U.S. long bond yield. So what that means is that for some reason, the U.S. monetary policy is having a disproportional impact on the performance of the Chinese market. And so if you look at the composite of the Chinese market, especially for Hong Kong, much of the Hong Kong index is financial and developers and they're interest rate sensitive. That's number one. And I think over the years, earnings in the Hong Kong stock market increasingly coming from mainland. So now 80% of the earnings is actually coming from the mainland market. So I think as a result, the Hong Kong market has become an extension of the mainland Chinese market, but it's priced in the U.S. dollars, you know, because the Hong Kong dollar is packed to the U.S. dollars at a fixed range. So I think as a result, you know, as you can see, the Chinese Asia sort of remains more resilient than Hong Kong because there was no currency exchange rate influence from the U.S. Uh, hiking rates. And then at the same time, you know, because as the U.S. hike rates and also the PBOC ease its monetary policy. The interest rate differential between the two countries is actually enlarging to a historically high level. So as a result, there has been tremendous pressure on the Chinese yuan. You know, at one stage, we come to close to 7.4 last month before the PBOC intervened. So I think Hong Kong is sort of between a rock and a hard place. You know, on one hand, you, know, you have weakening earnings because of the economic cycle is still trying to find its footing. And then on the other hand, the currency, the Chinese, the weakening Chinese currency is really putting another layer of pressure on the Hong Kong uh, stock exchange. So I think as a result, you have this double whammy lingering on top of the Hang Seng Index. So I think consequently, Hang Seng Index is probably one of the worst uh, performing major index in the world this year. But having said that, though, despite all the interest rate sensitivity or the currency movement, and also the mainland economic cycle that is affecting the Hong Kong market performance. 
this year, you're also seeing foreign funds continue to withdraw from the Hong Kong market as well. So I think all this negativity going on, all these clouds overhanging the Hong Kong market, you know, it's not surprising to see the Hang Seng is doing so badly, so poorly this year. But I think going forward, if the, you know, as you said, the economic number come in as we spoke and it was good and valuation is cheap. And also if the heavyweight stocks in the Hong Kong market, you know, for example, the Chinese banks is, you know, getting help from the sovereign fund. Then I think at about 17,000 level should be one of the lower, if not the lowest point for this cycle. So, so let's wait and see. I think as the market sells down, we should, as a true investor, we should sort of cheer for it you know, because it presents good opportunity for us to buy in. And I think at this level, we're trading at a valuation level not seen before, except for the last October. The Chinese economic cycle is trying to find its footing, and also the Chinese currency is getting some help from the PBOC. So I think on the margin, all these clouds overhanging, dark clouds overhanging the Hong Kong market is actually starting to improve on the margin. So I think consequently, we should conclude that more probably the Hong Kong market would do better, would improve at this point onwards. How, as you said, let's wait and see. And what you mentioned about the currency is definitely a very interesting way. It's definitely a very interesting way to look into the matter. Anyway, that's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Thank you very much, Hal, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.